recorded live. Sorry about that. I did that two nights in a row. Forgot to shut off the um, the music. Hello, this is William Fink. This is Christaginia.org. Christaginia Saturdays on TalkShoe, kind of, on TalkShoe and on Christaginia. Today is Saturday, February 9th, 2013. I thank you for listening and praise Yahweh, the God of true Israel. Tonight we will be commencing with the 11th segment of our series, Against the Paul Bashers. I would, um, <clears throat> I've challenged the Paul Bashers to, to um, come and talk to me, and, and nobody's taken me up on that challenge yet. If you're a Paul Basher, and for one reason or another, you don't want to come here and discuss these things with me, I welcome you to make a pointed list. I don't want any long diatribes. Make a pointed list of the problems that you have with the epistles of Paul of Tarsus and forward them to my email address, info at org, And I will address those issues during the course of this series. I would be happy to do that. I would suggest first that if your issues are, are with matters of basic Christian doctrine that may be solved with a better translation, that you check the Christogonian New Testament. Because I will effectively defend, I'm, I mean, I'm not saying I'm above mistakes, I certainly am not, but I will effectively defend the Greek and the reasons for my translations. Here again, we shall continue to address Clayton Douglas's article, The Seduction, Judeo-Christianity or Pauline Christianity? Well, I pick Pauline Christianity every time. Saul of Tarsus, Paul, a different view. And while I do hope that in the first 10 segments of this series where Douglas's article has been addressed, that his deceit has already been exposed and that his lies and his fraud are fully exhibited. We will continue to do well, so. Well, not only that, but we've exposed the fact that he can't keep his lies consistent. He tells contradictory lies, hoping that his audience is so stupid and ignorant that they can't realize that five paragraphs earlier he told a lie that's in direct contradiction of the lie he's now telling. Well, well, if people haven't figured it out, I don't have to introduce Sword Brother now. Hello, Brian. <laughs> oh, thank you for having me here. <laughs> Well, well, you're absolutely right. It's lie after lie after lie. It's false, false um, pretenses. It, it's the, this whole thing. It, it's it's a damn shame if this is the Paul, the best the Paul Bashers have. And, and I know it probably isn't. I know people probably have reasons that they might think in their mind are legitimate for for. Um, for, for attempting to dismiss Paul of Tarsus, I think those people are very, very wrong, and I would be willing to discuss it with any of them. Uh, I've, the, the Paul bashers that I've attempted to have discussions with in the past, Ralph Daigle, I know you're out there, Ralph. I know you still open my emails. I know you still read the Saxon Messenger. I use pretty high-tech software. Ralph Daigle, Jerry Kirk. Um, I, I could name a few people from Facebook. I could name a few people that are actually friendly to me. Uh, I could name that clown that goes by the name of Dave UK, and, and he's a Paul Basher. 
that there there are actually some Paul bashers I know that that won't confront me. Um, that the the former owner of IsraelElect.com is one of them. It, it's there's a long list, and and it's pretty damn sad because their the reasons for their Paul bashing are based most often upon misunderstandings of Paul's words the bad translations of the King James Bible, and misunderstandings about the mission and ministry of Christ and the relationship of the children of Israel to the Levitical priesthood and to the old kingdom law found in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. And, and it's that there are things in the Old Testament that prove beyond doubt that Paul was right about everything that he said about the law. And I suggest those people, if they'd like to make a pointed list, I'll be glad to discuss their issues, even if they don't want to come here. But they do it, and, and, and they, they actually have a be contrite of heart because it, it's... Um, there's no doubt in my mind whatsoever after years of study of the scriptures in the original languages, and, and I'm not saying I can't make a mistake, because I certainly can, but that Paul of Tarsus was an absolutely legitimate apostle with a legitimate mission without somebody having fulfilled the role which he fulfilled, we would not have Christianity today. We wouldn't have it. The Jews right. prevailed. They'd have wiped Christianity off the map. And there's a difference between someone who's confused and somebody who, like Clay Douglas or Dr. Graber, they're a purposeful deceiver trying to wreck Paul. I mean, years ago I had issues with some things that I read in Acts, but I corrected that and figured out what the mistakes were. I didn't have a chip on my shoulder where I wanted to hate Paul. Well, well, that's the thing, though, is that the articles of the, 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 the clown Dr. H. Graber and, and, and the turkey Clay Douglas, I don't mind calling them names, they, they've earned that they've earned those distinctions, that uh, these, the, the treachery of these men, the, the perfidy of these men, has caused many Christians to be confused. Right. And, and, and I, I think W.G. Finlay, whose who sources were, were the, the same, basically, as a lot of Clay Douglas's sources, that the, the homosexual um, fruitcake John Spong, and we'll be getting into him tonight, and especially next week, and the Jew rabbi, Jacqueline Prince. Absolutely. And I think it merits mention, you know, just a, a little jab here, that Graber has certainly earned the title clown much more so than he's earned the title doctor. Well, right. Absolutely. Well, this material in reply to Douglas had originally appeared, the material we're going to present tonight, had originally appeared in Clifton M. Heiser's Watchmen Teaching Letters, numbers 96 and 97, they're posted at emmaheiser.christagonia.org, which were dated for April and May of 2006. This material also appears in, at christagonia.org in a lengthy article, and, which is actually available in one PDF file somewhere on my website, entitled William Fink versus the Paul Bashers. All right, reference 19. Clay Douglas states, Paul tells much about his persecutions and trials during these missionary years. He claimed he was beaten, arrested, 
and placed in prison many times. Finally in Rome, Paul was arrested and put into prison. He died in Rome nearly blind and while under house arrest. While reading these tales of Paul's travels, the reader is enticed to feel sorry for Paul and angry at his persecutors. This is all part of the lie. Well, I'm sure if the story involved a Jew who alleged the Romans took you know, him away his business and took all of his gold and made him work as a farmer, there'd be a, a Steven Spielberg movie about it and the, the persecutions, the persecutions. Well, well, right. It, it's um, you, you know, it, it's it's a clear record in the Book of Acts, and, and Douglas is using the Book of Acts as his own source, while at the same time he despises its author, Luke, and it's clear that Luke wrote the entire Book of Acts, but Luke did not witness the entire Book of Acts. He only witnessed from chapter fifteen and later. Paul and Barnabas were persecuted by Jews in Pisidian Antioch and Anatolia, Acts chapter 13, verse 50, at Iconium, Acts chapter 14, verse 2, at Lustra, Acts chapter 14, verse 19. There is no contention over this, over any of these things, in any of the early Christian writers. And they didn't, you know, they didn't have an agenda. They didn't need an agenda in favor of Paul of Tarsus. There's no opposition to Paul's ministry and, and the facts surrounding Paul's ministry in any of the early Christian writers that I've ever seen. Paul was likewise pursued in Thessalonica, Acts chapter 17, at Berea, Acts chapter 17. Paul was also persecuted by Jews in Acts chapter 18 and by silversmiths at Ephesus, who appear to be pagan Greeks, but that's not necessarily so, in Acts chapter 18. Throughout these accounts, the Jews always enlisted, and, and we see this today. We see the same modus operandi today. The Jews always enlisted the common people to their cause by some clever device, well, well just as Clayton Douglas does throughout his article. The Jews, the Judeans in Jerusalem who rejected Christ, I can call them Jews, which all Edomites did, although many of these may have also been blind Israelites, but all the Edomites had, had rejected Christ. They seized Paul in Jerusalem, and they beat him, and they plotted and attempted to kill him, Acts chapters 21 through 23. And Jews testified against Paul before the Roman authorities, Acts chapters 24 and 25. We have an unbroken tradition from, in the Christian writers outside of the New Testament from Acts chapter 6 down through all the early church writers, Tertullian, Tertullian's Apology, chapter 21, or book 21, chapter 18, I'm sorry. Tertullian's Apology, book 21, chapter 25. That the Jews were behind all of the persecutions of Christians. Minutius Felix is another early Christian apologist that stated the same things. And of course, the Jews were behind the persecution of Christ himself. The Edomite Jews, especially the Sadducees, the materialists, the deniers of everything spiritual, who were the high priests at the time that Christ was slain. They were Sadducees. They were not Pharisees. Acts chapters 5 and 6 prove it. They're the people that persecuted Christ. They're the people that persecuted Paul. Clayton Douglas a follower of Jews. I mean, he's quoted Jews. He's quoted Jewish magicians. He's quoted Jewish authors 
and, and, and his attacks on Paul of Tarsus, Clayton Douglas, a follower of the Jews, is here a defender of the Jews and a champion of the Jews. No wonder he attempts to let Judas the traitor off, and he did this earlier, and in, 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 we presented this earlier in his article. He attempted to let Judas the traitor off as some poor, unsuspecting patsy. I'm beginning to wonder whether there's a yarmulke under Clayton Douglas's cowboy hat, right? Well, you know, he may not be a biological descendant of the Sadducees, but he's certainly a spiritual descendant. He's doing their work. Well, well, absolutely. He's a Jew between ears. And, and probably in a few other places I won't mention. It's simply amazing to me how all these people that have taken up Paul bashing are getting their data from Jewish sources. It's not from some insignificant Jewish sources, and these are Clifton's words I'm actually quoting at, at the end of Watchman's teaching letter number 96. Clifton made it a small addendum. It's not from insignificant Jewish sources, but from higher-ups in notable Jewish organizations, which Joaquin Prince was. And, and it's dumbfounding how anyone in Christian identity can profess and agree with to see line with a full understanding of how devious the Jews are and still adopt the Jewish propaganda. But that's what they do. At the root of Paul bashing, we find Jews. When we scratch the surface in all of this, we find Jewish sources. And we're going to show, and in, in, in probably what we'll show it somewhat this week, we'll get into John Spong a little bit. Next week, we will really reveal what sort of man Bishop John Spong was because Clayton Douglas quotes him in this article and uses him as a source against Paul of Tarsus. And That's a great source, right? Oh, absolutely. John Spong was the first, um, what was the first Episcopalian bishop to ordain sexual deviance. He's the one that was responsible in the 1980s for splitting the Episcopalian Church over whether faggots should be priests or, or ministers. He was 20 years ahead of the um, perversion curve. Yes, he was. He was also at the vanguard of the Civil Rights Movement in North Carolina. He was holding the hands of little Negro children as he walked them into white schools to pollute white schools. I wonder, now does he hold the hands of little white children to make sure they don't get mugged and raped in those same schools? Well, well, no, they rewarded him by sending him to Newark, New Jersey, a city which is probably, at that time, 70 or 75% black, maybe more, and um, he, he was put right where he belongs. Hmm. All right. Reference 20 now? Yes. Clay Douglas states, the lies. In Paul's letters and teachings, he passionately reminds people over and over again that he is not a liar and that he does not lie. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I do not lie. Second Corinthians eleven thirty one through 33. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Galatians 1, 15 through 20. For this I was appointed a preacher and apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. 1 Timothy 2, 7. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. 
For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen by race. Romans 9, 1 through 3. So, is Paul lying or not? If it is a lie and you accuse me of lying, I will be forced to respond with a denial because a lie cannot and will not speak for itself. The things that motivated me to lie will motivate me to deny my lie. Then, feeling the weakness of my position, I look for something more. What more can I do? I must call forth a witness so that you have not only my testimony, but also that of another. The scripture plainly states that everything is established at the mouth of two or three witnesses. You may have me pegged for a liar, but perhaps you will believe someone else. But on whom can I call on such short notice? To be effective, I must have a witness now. Not only so, but my witness must be a person of undisputed veracity, for it will not do to call on a reputed liar. Whose testimony would you accept immediately without question? Who? 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 Ah, there is only one person right for my task, God in heaven. So when they make the claim that, let's see, Paul was in the Roman army as, a, as an officer, he deserted, there's no evidence. Now there's a guy named Judas Iscariot, or Icariot, who I can't find any indication he existed. They don't even have two witnesses that this guy existed, let alone three or four. I mean, all we have is the word of some crackpot that wrote this article. So he's going to take us to task now and teach us all about lying? That's a joke. To continue, though, so who is Paul's witness? Understand that Paul's denials do not constitute proof that he was lying. Many have denied in, in an off-the-cuff manner when accused of lying, even though they were truthful. Children react this way when they accuse one another, and they frequently call on some higher authority to witness for them. If you don't believe me, ask my dad. They, being children, don't think of the implications of denial although they would understand them if they paused to reflect before responding. So I, I guess this clown would say, if you don't believe me, then ask Yoakum Prince. Well, well, this is, you know, this is really Freudian psychobabble, and, and in my answer I'll demonstrate that Christ could be accused the same way. Right. Well, these are the same people that have accused Christ all along. They're adversaries. They may even establish a habit of denial that persists into adulthood, and there continue to deny through force of habit. Perhaps we have all done it, but we are not dealing here with children or with flippant responses and face-to-face -face encounters. Paul was writing letters under circumstances that should have provided opportunity for reflection. I visualize him in the home of some disciple or in prison late at night after all others have retired, sitting before the dim light of a flickering oil lamp and carefully measuring his words. Well, first of all, they mock him, for, you know, describing himself as almost blind and for suffering in prison. And here they paint an image of him going blind by staying up late at night writing in prison. Well, well, right. I mean, it's, it's Clayton Douglas's double talk, right? Right. Yeah, you know, first, here Douglas, he's addressing first century literature, first century customs, practices, what, which Paul's letters are, and he's, he's criticizing them through the distorted lens of 20th century psychobabble. Because Paul emphatically states that he is telling the truth, or that he is not lying, Douglas would have one believe that he must be lying. Douglas's statements here are a classic example of Jewish doublethink. And we shall see this also a little later on in Douglas's article, that he practices the same thing. And, and he has the audacity here to accuse Paul of being a liar. And Douglas uses the same methods to defend his own position. Yahweh himself is recorded as saying through the psalmist, through, through the David, once 
have I sworn by my holiness that I will not lie unto David. His seed shall endure forever, and his throne is the sun before me. So, so we should dismiss those words because if you claim not to be lying and you swear upon God, well, well then you must be a liar. Well, well, so God must be a liar, right? According to Douglas's twisted logic, Yahweh himself, by denying that he lied, should be considered a liar. Psalm 89, verses 35 and 36. If Clayton Douglas's assertions are not Jewish psychobabble, then he's a mere hypocrite because he's holding Paul to a higher standard than he's holding God himself. And, and, and it's clear that Douglas is, it, his judgment is not just. Douglas also makes much of Paul's own appeals to Yahweh, Paul accused, accusing Paul of childish tactics, where he attributes to Paul the attitude, if you don't believe me, ask my dad. Unlike the scoffer Douglas, there was a time when men took such appeals to, to God. They took them seriously. They expected retribution from heaven if they were lying when they made such oaths. And there are many men who still do so. At one time, men understood that blasphemy was impiety, along with other sins, and, and, and that impiety was followed by judgment. The English word crisis, and I, like, I, I love to illustrate this, is nothing more than a transliteration of the Greek word, which means judgment. And, and there is still some men that understand that. We should examine the words of Paul, words of Paul at Galatians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, in light of the statements of Yahshua Christ in John chapter 5, verses 19 through 38, where Yahshua asserts that he is true and that it is Yahweh the Father who bears witness of him. Yahshua Christ also uttered the assertions that he was telling the truth in his statements, as we see recorded in Luke 4.26, Luke 8.27, Luke 12.44, several times in John, Luke 21.3, was Joshua Christ lying? Certainly, Clay Douglas does not measure Paul with the same standard that he measures God and Christ. He's trying well, Paul to a to a higher standard. Well, it's all ad hominem to attack Paul. I mean, right? He's made fun of Paul for almost going blind. He's invented this fictional idea that Paul was a Roman soldier, Roman officer, indeed, who deserted. I guess next he's probably going to say that Paul and Luke had a, a relationship that went beyond just being friends and fellow disciples. Maybe he's going to mock Paul's celibacy and claim that he was a drunk and a womanizer. Well, well right. And, and that there was a question in the chat room about why Paul would deny lying in, in Galatians 1. It's in chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. And, and the unfortunate situation that we have with Paul's letters is that all of his letters are clearly responses to other letters. We don't have, I would love to have it, we don't have the letter that the Galatians wrote to Paul. We don't have it. Well, we, we have one and two Corinthians, and it's very clear. And Paul states it in those letters that they, the Corinthians had written Paul, and Paul is responding to them. And we actually have another letter to the Corinthians before 1 Corinthians. 
And Paul mentions that letter in 1 Corinthians. So what these letters are is these letters are exchanges. Now, it's clear from Galatians chapter 1 that Paul was fending off Judaizers, just like he had fended them off in Antioch in Acts chapter 15. That's very clear from the context. So it must be the Judaizers who were accusing Paul of being a liar before the Galatians. And the Galatians wrote Paul to clarify some things. That's why Paul wrote the epistle to the Galatians. And, and that's very clear from the context of Galatians itself. However, we don't, well, unfortunately, we don't have the letter that the Galatians wrote to Paul. We only have the response that Paul was making to the Galatians. That's the way it is. It would be nice to have the other letters. Uh, I would certainly love to have the other letters. I'm sure that um, all Christians everywhere would love to have the rest of Paul's letters and the letters written to Paul, but we don't have them. So, so we can only infer some things. And, and it's, it's absolutely clear in the, in the context uh, of the epistle to the Galatians that Paul was addressing the same Judaizers that he was addressing throughout his ministry, and, and that's clear from Acts chapter 15. Now, you're right about raising the point about the, the candlelight. You know, Douglas admitted earlier in this article, Douglas admitted that Paul, in his own words, was in Rome nearly blind while under house arrest. And here, Douglas admit, envisions Paul alone writing by candlelight late at night. And how could that be if Paul was nearly blind? And we'll discuss that later on in in this presentation this evening. It, it just right. proves that Clayton Douglas can't get his story straight. He can't get it straight. He changes so many things from one paragraph to another, taking various sides, jumping the fence on the same argument back and forth. Like, like a, he, he's um, slithering like a snake through thick grass. <laughs> Reverse 21 now. Clay Douglas states, the truth of the matter is that Paul Saul was a Pharisee, known today as a Khazarian Zionist. From the beginning of time, their philosophy and lifestyle has never changed. They use anyone and everyone for their purposes as set forth in the Protocols of Zion. And Douglas is just, I guess, the latest example of someone they use. Paul was no exception. Paul was persecuted, but reportedly not for the reasons you think. Many sources claim that Paul Saul was a latent homosexual. Many, many sources, this is an appeal to a false authority because if I say studies suggest or studies indicate, experts agree. Well, who are the experts? Where are the studies? Who are the sources? This is, this is absurd. I don't even know how to begin to address this other than to suggest that maybe this is some Jew who's projecting his own latent homosexuality onto a Christian apostle. Well, well it absolutely is. His name is John Spong. And we'll find this out in, in, in Douglas's own article. First was Paul a chaos. We've addressed this already, have we not? With this one short paragraph, Douglas once again openly displays his shameful lack of knowledge of both Scripture and of history. This last irrational diatribe demonstrates that he has not the ability to comprehend even what he reads was Paul a Khazar. The Khazars ostensibly were at one time an Adamic people. I believe so. And I believe so, and, and I'm not the only one. Um, the 19th century 
Um, anthropologists and British scholars believed that the Khazars were at one time white, what were at one time related to Kush. And that, I can make one citation off the top of my head to support that. Dr. George Moore, 1860, The Lost Tribes and the Saxons of the East and the Saxons of the West, he clearly identified the Khazars um, etymologically and by reason of their location to the ancient Kush of Mesopotamia. Not, not the, the, the Ethiopians below Egypt, but the people the Greeks called the Ethiopians of the East, the people that left us the Hindu Kush mountains, that those people he identified and others at, as Kush and, and, and as the Khazars, right? So, so it's not, I'm, I'm not just making it up, right? The Khazars seem to have been at one time an Adamic people, white people who dwelt at the north and east of the Caspian Sea in what today is modern Kazakhstan. That's why they're Khazars, right? Kazakhstan. Far removed from Paul's world in both time and place. The later Khazar monuments do show, and, and Clifton's written on this, Watchman's teaching letter number 56, an admixture with, with the Hittites. They were converted to Judaism. They were converted by the, the, the Edomite Hittites, right? They were converted to Judaism beginning in the 7th century, 700 years after Paul's death. How could Paul be a Khazar? By no means may Paul be associated with these people. Was Paul a Zionist? Let's define Zionism. The American Heritage College Dictionary, I prefer to call it Zionism, right? That's the original Greek pronunciation would be Sion. The American Heritage College Dictionary defines Zionism, a Jewish movement that arose in the late 19th century in response to growing anti-Semitism and sought to reestablish a Jewish homeland in Palestine and now concerns itself with the survival and development of the state of Israeli. Israel. They call it Israel. I'd hate to. Can Paul be blamed for those policies? He can't be a, a Zionist, right? Rather, Paul taught that the Edomite Jews in Judea were the enemy. Paul taught that they were destined to be destroyed. Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 13 and 21 and 23. 21 through 23. Paul taught that the Edomite Jews in Judea were destined by God to be destroyed. That's hardly a zenith, right? Paul taught that the enemy of God had taken over the temple of Yahweh. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul taught that the Romans were going to participate in the destruction of these people in Romans 16, verse 20. So I wouldn't call Paul a Zionist, right? I mean, he's an anti-Zionist. And then again, you also wouldn't call him a latent homosexual. Well, well right, and we're going to get to that too. But, but Paul's letters are anti Zionist. He is not a Zionist. He taught that the Jews were contrary to all men. And Christians today don't know that, but don't blame it on Polytarsus. He taught basically in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 that the Edomite Jews sitting in the temple of God pretending to be God were in fact Satan. That's what Paul taught. It ain't Paul's fault that Christians today don't get it. This most vile accusation of Douglas's concerning Paul's sexuality 
Many sources claim that Paul Saul was a latent homosexual. Notice use of the term, and, and, and you just mentioned this, of, of the term many sources. That does not make your statement authoritative. It just doesn't. Now, now let's talk about the use of the term latent. The, the Jews love this term, and, and this is the, the most ridiculous phrase that has ever been concocted to slander people by the Jews in, 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 in modern Western language, I swear. Well, it doesn't require a shred of evidence. Well, well, right. But the use of the term latent, let's define the term latent. Present or potential, but not evident or active. American Heritage College Dictionary. Present or potential. Potential, but not evident or active. I must say that every single man in existence has the potential to be a homosexual. So we're all latent homosexuals, if you want to use that term. That's a false term. Latent homosexual does not exist in reality because all men have that potential simply by the fact that they are men. That doesn't mean they'll ever do such a thing. Right. I mean, the more appropriate use of the term latent would be to describe, say, a volcano that's not presently active, but it could become active. The term latent homosexual in reality is meaningless. It's totally meaningless. Now, now, two, pathology in a dormant or hidden stage. Four, psychology, present in the unconscious mind, but not consciously expressed. How the hell could you know what's in anybody's unconscious mind? especially when they're dead 2,000 years. The term can't exist. Latent homosexual is not a realistic term at all. It's an impossible term because all men have the capacity, because they're men. So, so that's a slander on all men. The Jew that came up with that term should have been taken out and hung immediately. The best part about the insult, though, it's impossible to refute because, like you said, since everybody has the potential, every male has that potential, and Paul's been dead for 2,000 years approximately, there's really no way it can be refuted. I mean, it can't be proven, but it can't be disproven because they're asking us to disprove a negative. The term can't exist. It's incredible. It's incredible that the Jews and their media are allowed... By, 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 they're allowed by the people that support them that they're allowed to use such terms and, and still keep their heads. Well, you know, the Jews, they're playing this game in the last 10, 20 years. They look back into our history, and they start telling us all of our great heroes were actually gay. You know, Alexander of Macedon, he cried and wept and held a funeral for a, a fellow, you know, male soldier when he died, and he was very sad, and, oh, they must have been gay lovers. Well... I guess the Jews don't understand friendship, they don't understand affection, they don't understand caring or kinship. They see a, a guy who cries when another guy dies, and they project their own values and their own views on that. Oh, they must have been lovers, because everything goes back to sex with the Jews. Absolutely. The Jew is an omnisexual pig. If it's hot and wet, look out. If there's a Jew around, it's, it, well, well, something indecent is going to happen. The Jew is an omnisexual beast, just like the Negro. And, and they project their perverted, twisted values on us all the time. And that's our weakness, is that we 
naturally project our noble moral consciousness and, and values onto these animals who by no means deserve it. Right. We believe that all people want to do the right thing and help their neighbors and build up the community. Well, well niggers are people like you because you don't know niggers. And, and they're really omnisexual beasts and animals, and they'll eat you after they have sex with you. Yes, you know, the Jews are also claiming that Michelangelo was gay and that he may have been even been gay with the Pope who commissioned him to do the fresco on the Sistine Chapel and that that's why he took so long, so he could stay, you know, living in the Vatican and maintain a relation with the Pope. I, I've heard such outlandish claims. Every single slander. The, the Jew is above no slander whatsoever. Right, and, and if we had a truly just, righteous society, when they start insulting our ancestors and our grandfathers and great-grandfathers, I, I think we would avenge the insult. Clay Douglas states, reference 22, nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. Romans 7.18, Paul of Tarsus. While Paul's impact on the world is clear, the issue of his sexuality is not. He was responsible for two of the three New Testament texts, specifically interpreted in the modern period as condemnation of homosexuality, and for the only reference in the Bible taken to refer explicitly to lesbianism. He was an intense, passionate man filled with tremendous self-loathing. Read some of his words. I pummel my body and subdue it, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. 1 Corinthians 9.27. Well, well, right, and it's a very difficult thing to be a moral man in an immoral world. And that's what Paul was attempting to explain. The need for self-control and the length that we should go as Christians to maintain it. It's clear from the record. Paul taught that self-control over one's lusts and emotions was a necessity. Not necessarily homosexual lusts. All men lust. The word encradia was often used by Paul. It means self-control. It was translated in the King James Version as temperance. The word also appears in, in Acts 24, verse 25. Galatians 5, verse 23. It appears twice in the first epistle of Peter. I'm sorry, the second epistle of Peter. Chapter 1, verse 6. That word appears twice. I don't think anybody's going to accuse Peter of being a homosexual because he used the word self, a word that means self-control. That's mad. Anyone who's ever read Deuteronomy should know that such self-control was necessary to practice in Old Testament times as well as New Testament times. God making laws against homosexuals was not a latent homosexual. Well, that's, you know, Leviticus chapter 20, a man who lies with a man should die, as he lies with a woman should die. Well, God made laws about homosexuals, so is he well, homosexual? Uh, and also, all can build homosexuals clearly. False accusations are strongly condemned, too, and if you accuse someone of a capital offense falsely, they're to do to you what you sought to have done to your brother Absolutely. or neighbor. Clayton Douglas accused Paul of Tarsus falsely of being a homosexual. He deserves the penalty if the accusation is false. That's the Hebrew word. That, that's the Hebrew law. Clayton Douglas should die according to the law. Yes. So he's, he's just making flippant, ridiculous, baseless accusations that 
like I said, we, we don't have Paul right here to interview or interrogate or question. Well, or, two or three witnesses, right? I mean, that's the right. standard. And, he doesn't, and I, I'm sure he has zero witnesses, and the three false witnesses are probably John Spong, some, you know, Graber character, and, and maybe a, that, that Jew, Yakum Prince. The um, so somebody in the chat room said that sexual sexual self control is much more natural in a culture that is free of pornography and vice, and and, and it's it's not yet you know Tacitus Tacitus the first century Roman historian explained in Germania part ten that the Romans looked upon every kind of vice and called it modern. Rome and Greece were full of sexual promiscuity and every sort of vice. They were full of pornography. The, the Spartan women were famous for see-through dresses. Okay? Now, now, Greece didn't have Playboy magazine, but they didn't need it. It was walking around all around them. Rome, the, the Spartan women were famous for see-through dresses. The Corinthians, to commit fornication, there was a verb that was actually coined after the people of Corinth called Corinthiazomahi, and it's used in the classics. To act like a Corinthian was to be a fornicator. The temple, the, the temple of Ephesus in, in Corinth, merchants from the world over, sailors from the world over, flocked to the temple of to, to the um the temple of Diana in Corinth. I'm sorry, Diana, the temple of Artemis in Corinth, because it was famous for its temple whores, boys and girls. And that's all explicitly condemned as a, a pagan practice that's an affront to God. Well, well, this is the world that Paul's preaching in at Ephesus at the Temple of Diana with the temple whores. At Corinth at, at the Temple of, of Artemis, Diana, Artemis, same thing, with, with the temple whores. There were temple whores all over the Greek world, boys and girls. There was pornography and lust all over the damn place in pagan Rome and in pagan Greece. This is the world Paul's talking in. He may as well have been given his sermons in Greenwich Village. And this sounds like the world the Jews are trying to restore today. Well, well absolutely. That, that's why the Jews love pagans. Because pagans don't have a solid foundation for a moral society. They never did. Anyone who's ever read Deuteronomy should know that self-control was necessary and that the people had to be reminded of it. That's why they had all those laws. That's why they were told to stay away from the pagan Canaanites and the other nations. Aside from the lures of drugs and alcohol, which most, if not all of us, have experienced to one extent or another during our lives, the lure of covetousness, lust, not only for money or property, but also for the opposite sex, are things which we are tempted with daily, and it's things which the Romans and Greeks were tempted with daily. Just look at their art. Yet, you know, there's Roman frescoes of women in bikinis performing for diners. Women in bikinis. The French didn't invent the bikini. I can show you pictures of Roman artwork 2,000 years old of women in bikinis. 
The idea that the French invented the bikinis in the 60s is absurd. The desire for security in our finances leads us to excess. Paul's talking about all kinds of self-control. He's talking about a control of all kinds of lust. He mentions homosexuality, no doubt. But it's not just that that Christians have to be aware of. It's a lot more than that. That there are all kinds of manifestations of lust and greed in our society, and there were in his society. Our egos cause us to, to lust to furnish ourselves with all sorts of toys and unnecessary items. Gross consumerism. Gross consumerism, which Western society has, has caused the downfall of Western society today, even though most of us don't know it yet, is a form of lust. And today, and in the first century, people were bombarded with sexual images daily and from many different directions. And those same hormones which allow men to get married and have children, those same hormones get men in trouble all the time. Any man who denies that must be a eunuch. All of the invitations to sin which are available today were also available in the first century. Even though they didn't have celluloid, they didn't have film, they didn't have photography, they had some pretty damn good artwork And they had some pretty perverse artwork. That they had the um, the statues of Pan with erect penises set up all over Greece, all over Greece at one time, at Paul's time. Sex was right out in the open, all over the Greek and Roman world, and people were confronted with it constantly. Paul uses himself as an example in Romans seven thirteen through twenty five, or at one Corinthians chapter nine verses nineteen through twenty seven. Douglas quotes both these examples, but Paul is only explaining to humans, to men with lusts and women with lusts. Paul is only explaining just how difficult it is, even for him, to control all of these lusts. We have all, without exception, experienced these lusts. Either that or you must be hormone-free. How many of us have gone to the lengths which Paul did to maintain self-control and to suppress them? The issue of Paul's sexuality should not even be called into question here, and it is slanderous to do so. Paul's statements here address the things which we have all experienced. Once we read them in context, and they have nothing to do with sexual deviancy, homosexuality, as the blasphemous Clay Douglas is suggesting, and we will address that shortly. First, it might be me to, to, um, to read the next section of Douglas's article. All right, reference 23. He does enlist the help of his icon, Bishop John Spahn. I hate calling this guy a bishop, but for purposes of clarification as to who we're talking about, I may have to. Well, well, you're right, right. You're absolutely right. It's disgusting to call him to call him by any sort of um, aggrandizing title. He's actually well, a clown. I'll just call him Bale Priest. He, he was John high paid, a high paid clown, right? Bale Priest, John Spong, right? That's a good title. Reference twenty three. Clay Douglas states. 
Bail priest John Spong had closely analyzed Paul's life and writings. Spong believes Paul's fiery manner of writing was his method of dealing with his own homosexuality. There is much, as Anglican Bishop of Newark John Spong has pointed out, which leads one to suspect Paul might have been a queer in some ways. The fact he was never married, unusual for a Jew of his time, his companionship with a series of younger men, especially St. Timothy, his mention of an unnamed thorn in the flesh, and possibly his disdain for some type of exploitative homosexual relationship in his period, all raise questions which cannot be answered, it must be admitted, about his homosexuality. And I suppose bail priest John Spong, his method of dealing with his own homosexuality is to try and remake the world into the homosexual image. Well, well, right. We're going to get into John Spong a little bit tonight, but we're going to get into him at length next week. And, and the reply, I'm going to read my reply to, the, to this slander. I'm going to read it tonight. But bear in mind that when I wrote this, I knew nothing about John Spong. I knew nothing. I was cut off from the world. I was in prison. I was writing this with, with a pile of old Greek and, and, and Roman books and a, and a bunch of Bibles, right? And I was cut off. I, I had no idea. I had no way to really find out who John Spong was. And, and, um, and Clifton had investigated who he was for us. And John Spong was everything that I thought he would probably turn out to be and more. And, and, and it was even worse than I could have imagined when I wrote this. Well, Bill, I, I've just looked it up. John Spong is 81 years old, and he's never been married once in his life. Well, well that, on, I, I don't, he, was actually, he was actually married and had two daughters, and we'll get into that next week. Oh, okay, because from his article here, it mentions nothing about any sort of family, a wife, or children. He, he was married and had two daughters, but the truth is that his wife got very sick at one point, and during that illness, and I'll prove this next week, John Spong had a homosexual epiphany, and it was no longer Adam and Eve. From that point forward, it was Adam and Steve. So he, he came out of the closet at that point. Yes, he did. It's apparent that Douglas has developed many of his ideas about Paul and about Christianity from Bishop, Bishop John Spong. Shortly we shall examine what sort of man this John Spong is, since it is evident that Clayton Douglas, or, or, or the clown that wrote this for Clayton Douglas, is more than a casual reader of John Spong's many uncouth works, and uncouth they are. This is a man who denies Jesus Christ, basically. I must say now, once the truly pious men amongst the Paul bashers listen to what we have to present about Spong, surely I pray they want to reevaluate many of their positions, because John Spong is one of the primary sources for all of the tripe against Paul of Tarsus. First, we're going to deal with the immediate issues raised by Douglas here. The liberal block, as I called it in my article, I mean, I don't know what to do. How else to create a euphemism? Why do I need a euphemism? The disgusting perverts, I should have called them, and this in other Western nations, which is actually a motley coalition of deviants, minority groups, and ignorant do-goody whites, all led by communist Jews, have long been attacking not only Christianity, but all of the pillars and icons of Western civilization. One of their common tactics is to portray a corrupt and decadent portrait of one of our heroes. 
usually with little or no solid evidence. This is a, this is a classic example of that. Spong's accusing Paul of being a latent homosexual is a classic example of this. Slandering the hero as some sort of deviant or hypocrite. In that matter, once the masses are convinced by the media, their own decadent behavior is eventually accepted and absorbed into the public perception of normal. If you could prove that George Washington was a homosexual, well, then it must be cool to be a homosexual because he was a great man. So now it's all right to have homosexuals. And, and we can all come out of the closet, right? I, I mean, that's the mentality that the Jew has used against the West for a long time now, and it's been very effective. This is only one method of their attacks on us, but it's very effective. It is more than a coincidence that the word devil in the New Testament in Greek is often translated from the word diabolus, which in truth means false accuser. They did this recently with Thomas Jefferson by claiming that he fathered a child by a negress. In truth, they knew that the DNA evidence pointed to only one of several dozen possible male Jeffersons of the era as the culprit. But that didn't stop them. They wanted it to be Thomas Jefferson. So they slandered him. In reality, the historical evidence points instead to his carousing brother Randolph. But that's a different story. The media blitz is long over. The icon is soiled. And the masses will never hear the contrary evidence. Thomas Jefferson was not perfect, but he was no race mixer. The desired result is that once enough great white men can be shown to have been race mixers, why should it remain taboo for the rest of us? If all those great men were race mixers, then it must be cool. We should all do it. That's the, that, that creates the Jewish ideal of heaven, right? Ditto for homosexuality. Ditto for other deviant practices. It'll come. This is just one tactic of the communist culture war against our race brought to us by so many deviants and Jews. These vile liberals have a problem with Paul of Tarsus. They have a problem with Paul because Paul alone made it absolutely unequivocally clear that sexual deviancy and Christianity have nothing in common. You won't find that in any of the other portions of the New Testament. And we all know, we as identity Christians all know, that homosexuality and deviant practices are severely punished in the Old Testament. But we're not talking about identity Christians. We're talking about Christianity in general. Most Christians out there will say, oh, that Old Testament, that God was mean. And that Old Testament, those laws are for the Jews. They're not for us. So think about that. If the New Testament does not condemn homosexuality, then it must be okay. Well, Paul's the obstacle because only in Paul's letters in the New Testament do we find definite, solid objections and condemnations to homosexuality. So Paul stands in the way of the gay agenda. So they have to slander him as being a latent homosexual, having a string of relationships with young, with young men like Timothy and Titus. I wonder how many drinking buddies Clay Douglas has had. 
If one of them was a young man, he must be a faggot. Oh, maybe it wasn't a drinking buddy. Maybe it was a pot-smoking buddy. Oh, right. But it doesn't matter. It's immaterial, right? Let's see Paul's remarks from his epistles in reference to deviant sexual behavior, which I'll take from my own translation of Paul, because I believe that I've rendered the Greek as clearly as possible. It's especially important in these instances. Romans chapter 1, verses 26 through 32. Therefore, Yahweh handed them over to a state of disgrace. These are the people that rejected God as, as he, and, and, and paganized the images of God and started to worship the creation more than the creator, as Paul explains in Romans chapter 1 from verse 18 forward. Therefore, Yahweh handed them over to a state of disgrace, for both their females exchanged their natural intimacy for that contrary to nature. And likewise, the males have given up the natural intimacy of the female, inflamed in their desires for one another, males with males perpetrating shamefulness. Now, this was going on in ancient Rome. This is very clear from the poets, from the historians, from the artwork of ancient Rome, that homosexuality in first century Rome was rampant, just like it is in America today. And just as they do not think it's fit, I'm sorry, I'm, I skipped a verse. I'm not going to do that. Males with males perpetrating shamefulness and their wandering necessitates the reward they are receiving among themselves. Today we call it AIDS, right? And just as they do not think it fit to have Yahweh in their knowledge, Yahweh handed them over to a reprobate mind to do things not fitting, being filled with all injustice, fornication, greediness, wickedness, full of envy, murder, strife, treachery, malignity, slanderers, loud talkers, haters of Yahweh, insolent, arrogant, pretentious, contrivers of evil, disobedient to parents, void of understanding, covenant breakers, heartless, merciless, such as these who knowing the judgments of Yahweh. Now here Paul condemns not only the, the sexual deviance, but he also condemns the people who approve of the sexual deviance, such as these who knowing the judgments of Yahweh, that they practicing such things are worthy of death, not only they who cause them, but also they approving of those committing them. Paul is telling us, not only the people who do such things, such as homosexuality, are worthy of death, but also those who approve of the damned faggots are also worthy of death under the law of God. That's what Paul's explaining. Paul is the only obstacle to a gay and open society in Christendom. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Or do you not know that the unjust will not inherit the kingdom of Yahweh? Do not be led astray. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminates, nor homosexuals. The King James translates that something like those abusing themselves with mankind. Nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor railers, nor rapacious, shall inherit the kingdom of Yahweh. 1 Timothy, chapter 1, verses 9 to 11. Knowing this, that law is not laid down for righteous, 
but for un, but for lawless and unruly, impious and wrongful, unholy and profane, patricidal and matricidal, murderous, fornicating, homosexual, kidnapping, lying, falsely swearing men, along with anything else which is contrary to sound instruction according to the gospel of the honor of the blessed Yahweh, which I, meaning Paul, had been entrusted with. In both of these cases, in Corinthians and in Timothy, the word homosexual is from a Greek word, arsenokoites, Strong's number 733. Arsenal means male. Koites is a reference to the sexual act. Coitus. Arsenokoites is used in the same manner throughout the classical Greek writings. The ninth edition of Liddell and Scott's Greek-English lexicon succinctly defines the word sodomite. It should also be evident that the law which Paul referred to in 1 Timothy 1.9 is certainly the Old Testament law, whereby he clearly demonstrated an obeisance to its principles. While it shall soon be demonstrated that John Spong certainly is a member of the Jewish liberal bloc seeking to corrupt forever our race and civilization, and that's what he seeks to do in all of his writing, First, his remarks above concerning Paul must be addressed. Douglas states that Spong believes Paul's fiery manner of writing it was his method of dealing with his own homosexuality. That's ridiculous. This is clearly unprovable, undocumentable, psychobabble contrived to be false support for further untrue accusations. It's a layer upon layer of... of, of typical Jewish calumny and false accusations. As for Paul's not marrying, Paul explains the reasons himself in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 1 through 23, not wanting to have any hindrance in the task to which he was assigned, which was the spreading of the gospel of Christ. How many men have sacrificed carnal desires, wife and family, for God and country, and other noble pursuits. Were all those men homosexuals? Certainly not. And many men have done so in our history. And neither was Paul. Adolf Hitler is another recent example. Oh, the Jews accuse him of being queer too. That's right, I forgot. I'm sorry. <laughs> I shall resort to another comparison with Yahshua Christ. He didn't marry. Not accusing Christ which would certainly be blasphemous, Douglas and Spong are mere hypocrites instead. Paul wrote, Hebrews 13, verse 4, marriage is valuable in every way. Paul advised Timothy that bishops and ministers must be married and have faithful children, since if they couldn't govern their own families well, then they certainly weren't qualified to govern the household of God. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. Douglas and Spong accused Paul of having companionship with a series of younger men. I wonder how many altar, I wonder how many altar boys Spong altered. <laughs> Thereby throwing a blanket accusation of homosexuality over all of the associates of Paul. That's calumny indeed. 
In the laws of Yahweh, which Paul certainly invoked, as quoted above, if a man also lie with mankind as he lieth with a woman, they shall surely be put to death. Leviticus 20.13. Deuteronomy 23.17. Beyond that, we're told their blood be upon them, so it's their own fault. Right. It's also written that if false, if the witness be a false witness and is testified falsely against his brother, then ye shall do unto him as he had thought to have done unto his brother. In other words, if you make a false accusation and you have testified falsely against your brother, against your racial kinsman, then the penalty is death. The accuser suffers the penalty instead. I pray that Yahweh grants Douglas and Spong the rewards of their labors quickly. Well, you know, they would just come back and say, oh, they can't help being this way. We need to be understanding. And I'm reminded of a Jewish propaganda film in 1931. It came out of the height of the depravity of Weimar called M, I guess M for murder, by Fritz Lang. And they have this child murderer who is implied to also be a, a child rapist pedophile played by Peter Lorre. And he's pleading with a mob that wants to kill him that he can't help it, that it's a, it's a sickness and he fights it and he feels the compulsion again and again to go after the children and it's not his fault. And one guy looks at him and says, so you admit that you're an uncontrollable child murderer and you can't help but murder children. And then he turns to his friend and says, this man's too dangerous to, to let live. We need to kill him now. But that, that's the Jew, isn't it? They want to confuse and muddle the issue. Oh, they can't help what they're doing. It's not their fault. They were born that way. Well, well, it, it, if you're born with an uncontrollable urge to burn down people's homes, that doesn't mean we're going to accommodate you and let you burn down people's homes. Absolutely. A homosexual, a fag, a, a sexual deviant is not deviant alone. If you allow a sexual deviant in your community, then you are guaranteeing the corruption of your youth. You're guaranteeing it. Beyond doubt, you're guaranteeing it. If you have a fag running loose in your neighborhood, he's going to get one of your boys, or two of your boys, or three of your boys. He's going to get them, because that's what they do. Sexual deviants don't have sex with themselves. You're guaranteeing, if you think it's okay to have fags running around your neighborhood, don't complain when little Johnny comes home with nylon panties on. It's bound to happen. And you deserve to reap that fruit. It's clear to me that Douglas's arguments are totally hypocritical and spong. As for the contention concerning Paul's unnamed thorn in the flesh, we must first ask, was Paul's thorn in the flesh truly unnamed? Paul mentions his thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. And I'll quote the Christogenian New Testament. And in order that I would not be exalted in the excellence of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh has been given to me, an adverse messenger, that it would strike me in order that I would not be exalted. Three times I have exhorted the prince concerning this, that it may depart from me. And he told me, my favor is enough for you, since the power is perfected in weakness. In weakness, not in sodomy. 
Paul didn't necessarily have to tell the Corinthians what his thorn in the flesh was. They probably already knew. Paul spent some time in Corinth, Acts chapter 18. And he had written them not only once before in 1 Corinthians, but at least twice before. And that's evident in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 9, that 1 Corinthians is not his first letter to the Corinthians. It's only the first letter that we have. Let's examine something Paul wrote to the Galatians after he visited them from Galatians chapter 4. Now you know that in sickness of the flesh I had announced the gospel to you earlier. And of my trial in the flesh you did not despise or loathe. But as a messenger of Yahweh you accepted me like Yahshua Christ. He who, is re- he who receives you receives me. Then what is your blessing? I testify to you that, if possible, your eyes being extracted, you would have given them to me. Now, any honest man, even a child, can see that Paul's thorn in the flesh was nothing more than his failed eyesight. He is attesting to the Galatians that if they could have given him their own eyes, that he believes they would have done so. That's what he's saying here, Galatians chapter 4, verses 13 through 15. It's extremely clear. Anybody who misses it is an idiot or has an agenda. It's that simple. Paul, Paul's thorn in the flesh was his failed eyesight. Well, perhaps the only thing worse than an idiot or someone with an agenda would be a team where you have a bunch of idiots being led by someone who has an agenda. I mean, that's what we're seeing here. Douglas is the useful idiot, and whoever authored the article is the one with the agenda. Absolutely. In an effort to find all the origins, I'm sorry, I'm ahead of myself. That, that's the next paragraph. In Watchman's teaching letter number 94, where I addressed Douglas's first quote in his article from Bishop John Spong, I wondered, I wrote, What sort of man could Spong be? That was on October 23rd of 2004. I was writing this installment of Clifton's Watchman's teaching letter, I believe in February of 2005. In the interim period, I was able to obtain some information about John Spong. And Clifton collected even more. How little I suspected that Spong is a much more vile man than I could have imagined when I first wrote, what sort of man could Spong be? Here it is fitting to divert from our response to Clayton Douglas's articles and to discuss Bishop Spong himself, whom Douglas must have read in depth. He quoted him many times and, and, and is practically a disciple. Once we see from his own mouth that John Spong is a lover of Negroes and homosexuals, that he is no true Christian, but rather a full-blown member of the Jewish, liberal, communist, deviant minority community who are hell-bent on destroying the white race and civilization. Then the motives of Spong, and perhaps also of Clayton Douglas, who quoted him, become fully manifest. I strongly urge all Paul bashers everywhere to fully contemplate 
The review of the life and works of John Spong, which we will begin with some comments and biographical information compiled by Clifton Emmeheiser. This is the source, the authoritative source, which Clayton Douglas used for his Paul bashing material. Would, would you like to read this, Brian? All right. In an effort to find all the origins of a phenomenon known today as anti-Paulism, it has led in many unusual directions. We first observed that Paul bashing was nothing new, for there were many anti-Paulists during Paul's own time. The one common characteristic surrounding the attempted refuting of Paul's writings in all periods of time since Paul is that it appears to have its origin from the bad fig Judeans of Revelation 2.9 and 3.9, whom we term as Jews today. In pursuit of the Jewish connection to this Paul bashing, which is gaining epidemic proportions, we find that W.G. Finlay from South Africa, a ravenous Paul basher, based his flawed assumptions on a book, Popes from the Ghetto, by Dr. Yakum Prince, president of the American Jewish Congress and chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major Jewish Organizations. Finlay also referred to Prince as, quote, the learned rabbi who still serves in the temple, Benai Abram of Newark in New Jersey, end quote. Now, now let me say something. And, and uh, I own, it shouldn't be a secret, I own, uh, I've come, I, I sort of inherited by default, I guess, IsraelElect.com now. I'm holding it. I'm not the creator of it. Everybody knows that. But, but I'm holding it, and, and it's on my servers, and it's under my control. Now, the creator of IsraelElect.com is a Paul Basher. I won't say his name out of respect for him. He, he, um, I believe him to be a, a well-meaning young man, and he did us a good task in putting IsraelElect.com together and posting all of Clifton's and my own writing on it before, long before I got out of prison. Well, well um, this gentleman is a Paul Basher. And I confronted him several times, and we no longer speak because of that. And um, I, I would have loved to have discussed all of his Paul bashing with him, in public or in private, but, but he didn't really want anything to do with it. Well, um, he has posted before I took over Israel elect, and I plan on leaving it there. I'm going to answer it one day, Yahweh willing, but he has posted a lot of W.G. Finlay's work on Israel Elect because he's a Paul Basher and so is W.G. Finlay. This quote from Clifton is 100% accurate. W.G. Finlay unabashedly admitting getting his Paul Bashing material from a damned lying Jew, from a Jew rabbi. It's absolutely incredible that somebody in Christian identity could accept this bullshit. That's the end of my rant. You could go on and read the rest of Clifton's material. It, it's, it, it's absolutely disgusting. John Spong is a damned fag and a nigger lover. W.G. Finlay is, is the follower of a, a, a perverted, corrupt rabbi. These are the vanguard of Paul Bashers. And, and I know a lot of good identity Christians sucked in by this filth. It's incredible. 
this is the tree from which the fruit of Paul bashing falls. Absolutely. For 2,000 years, it hasn't stopped. All right. As we shall see, this is not the only connection associated with Paul bashing in Newark, New Jersey. Not that that should be a bad reflection in any way upon any of the good citizens of Adamic culture from that state. Clayton Douglas's Paul bashing articles in the December 2003 and January 2004 issues of his Free American News Magazine state, quote, Bishop John S. Spong, Episcopal Bishop of Newark, Paul's words are not the words of God, they are the words of Paul, a vast difference, end quote. Thus we have one Paul Basher in the person of Clayton Douglas quoting another Paul Basher in the person of Bishop John S. Spong. It is paramount, therefore, to investigate the tenets of this Bishop John S. Spong from Newark, New Jersey, which we will now examine. To fully investigate this bishop will be no short task. Anyone who would like to verify what is about to be revealed here may go to the website www.dioceseofnewark.org slash J-S-S-P-O-N-G slash J-S-S-B-I-O-G dot html and i don't know if that is current well right i don't think that's current because when spong retired the diocese of newark changed the address of a lot of his biographical pages it was at one time current i don't know if all of these pages are no longer current i know that the material is still available on the internet all right to go to continue though at this website one will find a biography of john shelby spong and from that biography, one can decide if it is advisable and proper to be associated with such an evil person. One will find at this website that John Shelby Spong is a member of the, quote, House of Bishops of the Episcopal Church in the United States, end quote. No insignificant position in a vast realm of influence. Spong was born in 1931 in Charlotte, North Carolina, where he also attended public school. He graduated from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill in 1952 and received his Master of Divinity from the Protestant Episcopal Theological Seminary in Virginia in 1955, which later conferred on him, along with St. Paul's College, honorary Doctor of Divinity degrees. He then served as rector of St. Joseph's Church in Durham, North Carolina from 1955 to 1957, rector of Calvary Parish, Parboro, North Carolina, 1957 to 1965, rector of St. John's Church at Lynchburg, Virginia, 1965 to 1969, rector of St. Paul's Church, Richmond, Virginia, 1969 to 1976, consecrated bishop, 12 June, 1976. I could only wonder how many little boys he rectored. Go on. Bong's influence has touched a wide variety of official authority serving on committees and commissions. He was editor of the North Carolina Churchman, president of the Standing Committee, three times deputy to the General Convention. He has been president of the New Jersey Council of Churches Consultant, Episcopal Radio and Television Foundation Consultant. Well, let me say, is there any chance that, that John Spong, president of the New Jersey Council of Churches, knew... The rabbi across town, Jacqueline Prince, who, who was the, the, the president of the American Jewish Congress. You think there's a chance that these men crossed paths a few times? 
quite likely. And with his resume here, I wonder, is it possible that he's just ignorant of the Bible and he held all these positions without ever having read the Bible? They, they, they conferred all these degrees on him and he just didn't know any better. Right. Standing Liturgical Commission member, Overseas Review Committee of the National Church, elected 1973 to a six-year term. Executive Council, next highest governing body under the General Convention, appointed by Bishop, presiding Bishop Edmund Browning to serve on the Standing Commission on Human Affairs and Health, serves, at least at the time, on the House of Bishops Theology Committee, elected quarter centenary, centenary scholar, Emanuel College, Cambridge University, 1991, guest lecturer, Oxford University, United Kingdom, 1993, also, Spawn takes an active interest in sports, including play-by-play radio announcer for stations in Tarboro, North Carolina, and Lynchburg, Virginia, for the three major sports. What are the three major sports? I guess football, basketball, and baseball? Probably. And I'm not going to, you know, it goes on to, to talk about his work as a sports editor for a newspaper. And, and Clifton cites several websites that, that um, where, where we, we extracted bio- biographical information concerning Spahn. One of those was, of course, the Diocese of Newark web's website, the, the Episcopalian Diocese of Newark, right? Another one was Rutgers University in New Jersey. And another one was the diocese that the anti-racist mothers that the anti-racist mothers which was actually an organization which had a chapter within and sponsored by the diocese of newark and in next week next week we are going to talk about the life of john spong from the biographical information published at the Anti-Racist Mothers website and at the Episcopalian Diocese of Newark websites. And we'll probably spend a good portion of next week's program on that alone. But the, the, the source of the poll bashing material used by so many people who criticized Paul of Tarsus, who would really seek to undermine Christianity totally, the source must be revealed. And, and a, a look at the life of this John Spahn character is a very good way, is one very good way of revealing that. And we'll do that here next week. Well, he, he can't get any worse, can he? Or maybe I shouldn't have said that. Well, well, no, it can't get much worse. But this man is, is all Christian identists, all identity Christians everywhere should agree on one thing once they investigate John Spong, that this man, no matter what you think about the Bible, this man is a vile son of a... Well, well I, won't, I won't finish the phrase. I'll restrain myself for once. But that's that this man is, is absolute evil. He's sick. Yes, he is. And it's a disgrace that Christians should use any... Of, of, of the so-called works of this man, because it's all you have to do is read the titles to his magazine articles that he's published in his books, and you'll know that this man is one sick, perverted bastard, that there is no doubt, and, and sought to do nothing but undermine Christianity and, and Western civilization. Okay, thank you for joining me. 
Praise Yahweh. I will see you here next week, and, and we'll do Against the Paul Bashers, part 12, The Life of John Shelby Spong, I guess we could call that one. Praise Yahweh. Praise Yahweh. Good night.